You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. It was said in World War II that in the middle of the battle, it was Christmas Eve, and Germans and Americans were fighting each other. When in that moment it quieted down, it was a starlit night, it was cold, and all of a sudden a soldier began to sing a Christmas carol. I don't remember whether it was a German, I think it was a German Nazi soldier that sang. And before long, firing ceased. And American and German troops stood up on that night sky, under that night sky, and they began to sing that Christmas carol together. And then they came together there on the battlefield and spent moments in dialogue with each other. And after all that was over with, then they returned to the battle. Wow, power of a song. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, we give you all the glory. Lord Jesus, you alone are worthy. And we pray, dear Lord, and recognize that that was a holy, precious, divine night when our Savior was born. And Lord, I pray that for everyone in this room that they know you, dear Jesus, as their personal Lord and Savior. And if they don't, in these moments that they'll come to know you in a personal and intimate way. We pray, dear Lord, I ask you to cleanse me, to forgive me. There be anything in me, Lord, any thought, deed, or word. Cleanse me by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let me be a vessel that you can use to preach your word. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. You can go ahead and take your Bibles, and I want you to turn to Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus today. We are in the introduction to the chronological Bible, and uh, we'll read Exodus chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Jack Higgins is a British novelist, and he wrote a book called The Eagle Has Landed. He wrote several bestsellers. As a, as a British novelist. He was asked at one point, some of his books have gone on to be Hollywood uh, movie productions. He was asked at the height of his career by a reporter, what is it that you know now that you wish you had known when you were a young man? Jack Higgins responded to that question with these words. I wish someone had told me when you get to the top, there's nothing there. This famous British novelist, recognized in the literary world, books have been published, books have been put into major movie productions, and yet said, I wish someone had told me when you get to the top, there is nothing there. Boris Becker, a tennis legend, After winning the second Wimbledon, responded to a reporter, my greatest battle is still with suicide. Wow. A Dallas cowboy was interviewed by a reporter, and they looked at him because they had known him for years, and they said, there's something different about you. What is it? 
And this Dallas Cowboy, this famous football player, responded, Jesus Christ. And the reporter said, well, what happened? He said, well, the day that we won the Super Bowl, I went home and finally laid my head down on a pillow. He said, I was looking up toward the ceiling. I thought to myself, I had every accomplishment that a man in my profession could possibly have, and yet I was empty, I was alone, and in essence had nothing. And he said, it was there in that moment that I reached out and gave my life to Jesus Christ. Today we're in Exodus chapter 2. We're looking at a man by the name of Moses. And so in Exodus chapter 2 verse 1, and remember we're going through the chronological Bible. We're kind of going through those 14 epics and we'll talk about those in a moment. But let's read for a moment. Now a man, chapter 2 verse 1, Exodus. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman. Now remember a Levite was those that were responsible for the tabernacle and the priesthood and would eventually be identified as that. And she became pregnant. She gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, why is she hiding him? Because the Pharaoh, the Pharaoh at that time of Egypt, Pharaoh had because of the multiplication of the Hebrew people after they had moved after the death of, uh, during the time of Joseph, after they had settled there in Egypt, had become a formidable force. And Pharaoh, in fear that they might unite with the enemies of Egypt, had said and given out a dictate that all the babies, all the baby boys would be killed. So Amram and Jochebed, we find them here. She's pregnant. She gives birth to Moses, her son. She saw that he was a fine child. She hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch, bitumen. This is the same material that was used by Moses to seal the ark of the, uh, the Noah's Ark. Then she placed the child in it. She put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Her sister stood at a distance, his sister, that is Miriam, stood at a distance to see what would happen to the child. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds, sent a slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying. And she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister, Miriam, asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, yes, go. She answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew up, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Let's pray again. Lord, we thank you and we love you. We give you glory for your word, and most of all for Jesus. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well. You know, we've been talking about the CBT, the Chronological Bible. We've sold all of them. The fact, the one that's up here now on this table is my personal Bible that I've not even unwrapped yet because I'm using a, a, another Chronological Bible and finishing out the year. 
But anyway, we basically said this, and I don't, okay, it's up there. We basically said that we'll be going through the chronological Bible in 2017 as a church body. Now, we've ordered more Bibles, so hang on. If you haven't gotten yours, we'll have another few cases coming in, and we'll get to those, get those to you soon. But we said basically that we divide the Bible into 14 epics, and you see each one of those pictures, nine being the Old Testament, and then the uh, intertestamental period, the silent years, and then the four additional epics or ages being the New Testament. Now, we said that first square up there is creation. That's the first epic. That's the first time or the first age within the Bible. It goes from Genesis 1 to Genesis eleven twenty seven, And in that are five principal, five stories. It is the creation... It is the fall of man, it is Cain and Abel, it is Noah's Ark, and it's the Tower of Babel. So if you had remember those five stories, they're contained within that epic or that age creation. The next period of time is called the patriarchs, and that centers around three historical figures principally, and then a fourth one. Who are they? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And then we also include into that Joseph, but then we also slash put Judah in that group as well. Now, when you come to the end of Genesis, because the patriarchs will take you to the end of Genesis, when you come to the end of Genesis, you find that Joseph is kind of a transfigure, uh, transitional figure, a, a transitional historical figure. Remember, Jacob... And all of his family, his 70 descendants, have moved to Egypt, and Joseph has been used to get them there to save them during a time of famine there in Canaan. So that's how the covenant people, the family, the Abrahamic uh, covenant family, the covenant family, this is how they get to Egypt. Joseph is that transitional character that explains how the faith family gets to Egypt and why. Now let me make two points here quickly before I leave that. Joseph is a unique figure. And he is worth you spending some time studying this man. In fact, take your Bibles, turn left and look at Genesis chapter 45, verse 7 and 8, because I want you to see this. Joseph has lived a tragic life. He's had great difficulty. He's hated by his brothers. His brothers sell him into slavery for 20 pieces of silver to Ishmaelite traders. He's sent to Egypt. His father is told that he's been killed by a wild animal because his coat of many colors is, now has blood on it and given it to Jacob. He is in Egypt. He's lied about by, by Potiphar's wife in which he served as a slave, a servant in that household. He's thrown into prison. He's forgotten by the baker and the, and the cupbearer. And his life is very tragic. In fact, look this way. It is 12 years of tragedy. He is in his 30s. And his life is still tragic. But I want you to see what he says in Genesis 45, 7 and 8. In Genesis 45, 7 and 8, here Joseph says these words. He sums up his tragic, broken, shattered life by saying, "For but God sent me... He's talking to his brothers here. He has the power to take their life. He has the power to bring recompense. He, I meant uh, um, uh, to... He has the power to take their life. But in, 
in speaking to his brothers, he says to them who had sold him into slavery, he said, listen, it wasn't you, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He recognizes, even in his tragic broken life, the sovereignty of God. Sheila and I, we were riding along yesterday, and I've been real sick, and I'm, to be honest with you, I'm kind of dizzy now. I'm struggling with vertigo, so pray for me. It's just been tough. <laughs> But Sheila and I, we were talking yesterday and we said this. We said, we met 40 years ago in college. 40 years ago. Right now. We were just beginning to date. And we began to talk about how easily we could have missed each other. It would have been so easy. I had dated her roommate's roommate from the year before. My college roommate was dating her roommate of that year, of this year. And so by a strange twist, we were introduced to each other and thereby we began to talk about our life. The last 40 years, we would have never dreamed that we would have four children, 14 grandchildren, and done some of the things that we did. But we recognized this, it was the sovereign hand of God. In fact, I looked up the day, we were laying in bed and I looked up the time and I said, Sheila, this yesterday would have been Friday uh, in, ni- in uh, December, what was it, the 10th, uh, December the 10th, 1976. I said it would have been a Friday night and we were dating at that time. We were just starting to date. It may have been our first date. But a sovereign hand, that sovereign hand of God was guiding and bringing us along. And that's what Joseph recognizes. And let me tell you something, that's what you have to recognize. Even in the tragedies and the pain and the sufferings of life, God is busy. Secondly, we see forgiveness. Look at at Genesis chapter 50, verse 15. I love this. Because after the death of Jacob, the brothers become worried that Joseph is now going to retaliate and he's going to take his vengeance. And so the brothers get together and once again they lie. Jacob didn't say this. But they go, to, they go to Joseph. They get a hearing with the second in command of Pharaoh in Egypt. And they say to their brother Joseph, listen, before our, brother, before our dad died, he said for you to be good to us and not hurt us, not harm us. Now watch what Joseph says in chapter 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if, brother, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and he pays us back for all the wrongs that we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. Everybody look this way. You remember when you were going to lie when you were a kid? What did you do? You know? I grew, up with a bro- I grew up with a brother and two sisters. And there were times that I would lie. And when I lied, I crossed my fingers. Because for some reason, that got you out of the lie. And so my sister, especially my younger sister, Marcia, who listens sometimes on the website, she would say, you got your fingers crossed, uncross your fingers. Well, then I'd sit there like this. And she'd say, uncross your legs. She would be trying to figure out what I was crossing in order to get me out of a lie. I think that these brothers were sitting there with their fingers crossed because what they were saying wasn't true. They weren't walking by faith. They were walking like you and I do, by fear. 
So, when, so they, they come to their brother, Joseph. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. Chapter 50, verse 17. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, what did Joseph do? We looked at this when we went through the book of Genesis. Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. They said, we are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done in the saving of many lives. How you move from that time, you have creation, that first epic, that first time. Then you have the patriarchs. As you come into Exodus, you find that Joseph is your transitional character that explains a lot as to how the Hebrew people got to Egypt and what God was doing when he put them in Egypt. And that is critical. And then we come to Exodus. That little square there, that little third one there that looks like, well, it kind of looks like a blackboard to the left and then scrolls to the right, that is the Exodus. And that area, that particular epic or time covers Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In other words, there's a great deal of your Bible that is covered in that little bit of time. Exodus, in fact, when you get to Exodus chapter 1, chapter 1, look this way, covers 400 years. 400 years in chapter 1. In chapter 2, it covers Moses' first 40 years of life. In chapters 3 through 18, it covers the plagues. In chapters Exodus 3 through Exodus chapter 18, it covers the plagues, the Red Sea, and the destruction of Pharaoh's army. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 40, uh, chapter 19 through chapter 40, it covers Mount Sinai and the giving of the law. That's Exodus. Leviticus is about the law. It is a record of God's law to you and I. It carries everything, all kinds of laws, all kinds of situations, even dietary laws. Numbers is a book that begins with a census and it ends with a census. Numbers is a painful book because the first census has to do with the people when they're in the wilderness. But these people, they've got too much Egypt in them. They rebel against God, the sons of Korah. I mean, you just have all kinds of rebellion, all kinds of insurrection. Miriam mounts, out, mounts up an insurrection against Moses. So this is a time of great, a great deal of, of trauma, of drama in the book of Numbers. It begins, with a, it begins with a census, which is the counting of the people before uh, God disciplines them. At the end of Numbers, you come to another census, and this is as God has disciplined them. And remember, because they would not believe, they did not go into the promised land, they allowed fear to take over their life, they never went into the promised land, God said, that's all right. Because you've rebelled and because you haven't believed, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation dies off, and everyone 20 years and older, they'll live and they'll be the ones to go into the promised land. So the book of Numbers is a painful book. And then when you come to Deuteronomy, when you look at Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is Moses on his deathbed in some ways. It is Moses coming to the end of his life and he's like a parent who's pulling a child down close to their ear and they're saying some things that you need to hear. 
So real quickly, I want you to take a right now from Exodus, now that you've kind of gotten an aerial view of this epic or this age, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 32. Now in Deuteronomy chapter chapter 4, beginning at verse 32, Moses does a review with the people. He does a review. In in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 32, Moses is talking to these people. Now he's about to die. He's about to turn over the leadership to Joshua. He says, ask now about the former days, long before your time. From the day God created man on the earth, ask from one end of the heavens to the other, has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testing, by miraculous signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand, an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? You were shown these things so that you might know that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides Him, there is no other. From heaven He made you hear His voice to discipline you. On earth He showed you His great fire, and you heard His words from out of the fire. Because He loved your forefathers and chose your descendants, there's the Abrahamic covenant, there's the choosing of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. That's the patriarchal period. After them, he brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength to drive out before you nations greater and stronger than you and to bring you into a land to give it to you for your inheritance as it is today. Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. Now look at verse 40. Keep his decrees and commands. There's Levitical law. There's the Ten Commandments. Keep His decrees and commands which I'm giving you today so that it may go well with you and with your children after you and that you may live long in the land the Lord your God gives you for all time. He first of all, He reminds them how they came to be faith followers, how they came into the covenant family. He reminds them that they're the lineage of Abraham and they're under the Abrahamic covenant. And this covenant relationship with God, with the only true God, requires them to be committed as well as God be committed. It was a covenant. It was an agreement. It was God and man coming together. God said to Abraham, He said, Abraham, I'm choosing you and I'm choosing your lineage and through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. That is a prophetic word about the Messiah. And God says to, through, a, through Moses now to the Hebrew people, He says, listen, has God ever done anything like this before? No. And what is implied here is that these faith followers have a free will. They have a choice. And what God is saying to them as they're getting ready to go under the leadership of Joshua into the promised land, God is saying to them, trust me. I've given you instructions for your good. The Word of God. Exercise faith in my Word, in my will, rather than your own Word in your own will. And because of that, God says, if you'll obey me, I'll give you victory as you take the land. 
I heard Robbie Zacharias, because let me, let me, I, I wrote this down. And I've just put in big, bold letters in my notes, warning. And Andrew was asking me a moment ago in the office, he said, does anybody ask for your manuscript? And I said, every once in a while. But Andrew, in my notes here, I have a big, bold letters, warning. And it says this, sin, though small, can wreak havoc in our lives. Robbie Zacharias said that a doctor called him late one night and he was distraught, he was real upset. And he said, Robbie, I need you to pray for me. And Robbie said, this doctor was a close friend, ER doctor. He, he said, what's wrong? He said, well, he said, we had a woman come in. She was absolutely beaten and bruised almost beyond recognition by her husband. He said, I was desperate to save her life. He said, finally, her heart quit beating. He said, I cut her chest cavity open. He said, I reached my hand into her heart and I began to massage her heart, desperately trying to save her life, but she died. He said, afterwards, I was washing up when I noticed a paper cut. And in that moment, I realized that her blood had gotten into that paper cut. He said, it scared me. He said, about that time the nurse came in, she said, Doctor, I need to make you aware that in her belongings that were brought to the hospital, there are all kinds of syringes. You'll need to be tested for HIV and for hepatitis. And I thought when I heard that, I, saw, I thought, sin, though so small, can wreak such havoc. And this is what Moses is saying. He's like a parent. He's, the, he, he's like the parent in the book of Exodus. He's pulling down Joshua and Caleb and the, and the leadership. He's saying to the nation of Israel, he's saying, who has ever done this before? Entered into this covenant relationship in which God is going to use you as a nation. Secondly, it's not only review, there's rewards. Take a right and go over to Gen uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28. Look at, look at Deuteronomy chapter 28 verses 1 and 2. Because this is really powerful. Moses not only reviews, he not only talks about the covenant relationship and how God is in a covenant relationship with them, he begins to talk about the rewards. He says in Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 and 2, If you fully obey the Lord your God and you carefully follow all His commands, I give you today the Lord your... He says, I give you today the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on the earth. God said, I'll exalt you if you'll fully obey me. Look at verse 2. Dog ear that page, parent. Teach this to your kids. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you will obey your God. It's conditional. There's a big but. <laughs> God says, I love you. I'm committed to you in this covenant relationship and I will bless you if you walk in obedience. In fact, what God goes on to say, in fact, look at verse, I think it's verse 15. Well, no, we won't get there yet. If you read between there and verse 15, what you'll find out is this. God basically says this. He says, I love you, and if you'll fully obey me, watch what he says this. He says, I will chase after you with blessings. Isn't that good? Do you wish somebody would chase after you with blessings? Imagine if, imagine if I were a billionaire. 
if I was a billionaire and I just dogged your steps, I was always behind you. I mean, listen, every time you, you, you'd say, you know, uh, you'd look at a truck and I'd come up behind you, stick my head by your shoulder and say, I'll buy it for you. You want it? Now, I'm being, I'm being facetious, facetious a little bit. But what I'm saying is God says to the nation of Israel, if you will fully obey me, I will chase after you with blessings. You can't outrun me. I'll meet every need that you have. But watch what he says in verse 15. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all His commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will be upon you and will overtake you. What God is saying is, listen, I can either chase you with blessings or a switch. You've heard me say this. My mom's been in heaven now, well, three years. But my mom, I was a tough kid to raise, I guess. I was full of energy. Man, I was all boy. And I'd get in trouble. Mom, mom, mom would be chasing me through the house. Running, and you couldn't catch me. I was fast. And what I'd do, we had tile floors. And Marge, what I'd do is I'd be running from my mom. When I got to my bedroom, I would slide. And I mean, I, I, look, I mean, it was unbelievable. I looked like I was in the World Series going into the home plate. I would slide up under my bed and lay back up against the wall. And then I'd hear my mom looking for me. And Debbie, she could always find me. And she always got under the bed with me. You have a God that loves you so much that when you and I allow sin to begin to creep into our life and develop into, uh, and develop into behaviors, into patterns, what God says is, I'll chase you down. I can chase you with blessings. I can chase you with discipline. The decision, God says, is left up to you. So that turn to chapter 30 because here we see God requires a response. In chapter 30, verses 15 through 30, 15 through 20, Moses now says, and I know this is fast, but stay with me here. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15, because God says to the faith family and to you and I, we're flawed. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to lead the God I love. That We're flawed. We Listen, we have an enemy. John 10, 10. Our enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. We are in a spiritual battle, and our enemy's doing everything he can to defeat us. And you say, well, I'm a Christian. Well, then he's after the joy of your salvation. He wants to steal your joy because he can shut you up. You have an enemy. And look this way. Everybody look this way. This right here is an enemy. What do I mean? I'm talking about your flesh, my flesh. We have a, we have a treasure, but it's in an earthen vessel. We have a body that still has all of its sinful nature. So that Paul said in Galatians 5, the Holy Spirit is battling with our sinful nature for control. So what Moses says to these people in chapter 30, verse 15, he says, God says, see, he's saying to the covenant family, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I, Listen, Sheila, when she was teaching three-year-olds, she would stop and she would look at a three-year-old and she said, she would get down there and she would say, why are you in trouble? I can just see Caleb. And Sheila would say, you're in trouble because you made a bad choice. 
And she was teaching those three-year-olds for over 12 years of teaching three-year-olds. She was saying to those three-year-olds, listen, a lot of your problems, even the discipline that you're experiencing now, is a result of a choice you've made. Wow. So God is saying through Moses... He reviews the covenant. He talks about rewards. I'll, I'll chase you with blessings or I can chase you with discipline. But then he talks about a response. He says, God says, I put before you life and death, prosperity, destruction. I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk, into his, to walk in His ways, to keep His commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you're entering to possess but if your heart turns away and you're not obedient, if you're drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land. You're crossing the Jordan to possess. Now look down there in verse 13. I've got it underlined in my Bible. This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you what? Life and death. Blessing and curses. Now, what is in the next three words? In the NIV, it says what? Now choose life. I said to my Sunday school class, we were talking about sin. And I said, my problem is not with sin. My problem, my problem with sin has to do with my love for Christ. I just don't love Jesus enough to give up a sin. Isn't that true? So what he's saying here is, he's saying a response. Now, fourthly, he says there's regulations. That's Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. When you look at Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, it basically is Moses taking the faith family. I hate Molly's not here because Molly could get into this, maybe give us a little insight. But it's taking the faith family and structuring them into a community of believers to where they have regulations. If you look at Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, this has to do with the law. It has to do with government. It keeps the faith family protected from selfishness, individual selfishness. Let me give you an example. The hundred and alleged, are you listening because I want you to hear this. I'll see if you know the answer to this. In 2000, he was 199th pick in the draft, 199th pick. He came out of Michigan. His, it was told that when he was a quarterback out of Michigan, year 2000, 199th draft pick. Because he couldn't get, he wasn't getting the call, wasn't getting the call, wasn't getting the call. He finally was just, he was just literally pacing. He was there with his parents. He was pacing. Finally, he said, "Come on, mom and dad, let's go for a walk." And he started walking around the block. And every once in a while, they'd check in, see if there was a call coming. He kept. Time after time, round after round, you know, six round, 199th pick, he's finally picked. You want to guess who he is? Who? Tom Brady. Tom Brady, the quarterback of the New England Patriots. But when I thought about this, and I thought about how selfishness can sometimes get into our life, I thought about here's a man who has won more, and he, right now he just went past Peyton Manning's record. He's won more games than any other. He's one of the most winning quarterbacks. He is a sure, he is sure to go into the Hall of Fame. And yet you get called up looking at the ball boy before a game saying, hey, inflate him a little more than you normally do. 
knowing that you're breaking the law of football and thereby you're risking. And guess what happens this past this year? He's penalized the first four games and he can't play ball. Let me tell you what, when you look at Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, it is God literally governing his people. That's the law. Let me give you some real quickly and we'll close in a moment. Exodus through Deuteronomy. Let's take crops. What God's Word says in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, what God says to farmers, He says to farmers, now listen, He said, farmers, when you harvest your field, you can only do it one time. You can't go back over to second time. Does anybody know why? It was for the poor. It was for hurting people. Ruth and Boaz, you remember? Ruth is an example of that. See, the Bible will start fitting together. You'll start fitting all the pieces together. Oh, okay, that makes sense. When you get to Leviticus and you're laboring through Leviticus, you'll go, wow, that's right. That's why Boaz left, his, uh, left a portion of the crop. You don't harvest a second time. You, listen, stay with me. You don't harvest the corners of your field. You don't, you don't go all the way up to the edges. You leave the corners for the poor. And guess what? Listen, it gets better. Every seventh year, a farmer had to give a Sabbath rest. Now, let me tell you what that means. That means that you leave the tractor in the barn. That means, Jerry, if you're a farmer, that means that you just simply make this a, a year of faith. You believe that in the seventh year, God's going to raise the crop up by himself. Imagine in a Delta community, in a rural Delta community, down there where they farm soybeans and cotton and all that, if you looked at them and said, hey guys, seventh year, you can't crank up nothing. <laughs> well, how are we going to make ends meet? God will provide. Wow. That's in the book of Leviticus. Well, let me give you another one. Debt. You, 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 uh, you use grandpa, you use the family land for, um, for, uh, for your mortgage for something you're buying or whatever. Every 50th year, the year of Jubilee, you know what happened to debt? All debt was canceled. That means, Jeffrey, in the 49th year, you could go down and buy four-wheel drive Z71, load it to the max with everything possible on it because you know the 50th year, your debt's going to be canceled. Gray Daniels will be holding the... No, I'm teasing. All debt would be canceled because you know what, the, you know what God believed about his people? He knew that sometimes they'd make mistakes and he knew that they needed a fresh start. Let me give you another one. God-centered judicial political system. This was a theocratic society. This was a system of government in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This was a system of government by which the priests ruled using the word of God to govern and to guide. Now let me tell you something. There's going to be some strange things when you get to this part of the Bible. Let me give you an example. Hebrew guy, Doug Payne's not here, so we'll use Doug. Sandy burns the Sunday roast. Doug looks at her and says, I'm going to have to divorce you. You're out of here. And so what, what uh, a man would do, now this probably won't work well, and Sandy won't like this, so I'll quit using Sandy. What a man would do, he would, he would make up some pumped up charges. What he'd say is, well, my, my wife, I think my wife committed adultery. And so he would make an accusation that wasn't true because he just wanted to get rid of her. So what, the, what God did and what was in his word, and some of these things are strange, what God said to the priest, you would take, the man and his wife would go to the temple, the tent of meetings, the tent of meeting. And there they would take dust off the floor. 
they would put water and dust together, the dust off the floor of the temple, and she would drink it. Now, ladies, listen. If her thighs swelled, that meant she was guilty. Ivan May, talking about this, Ivan May said this. She was talking to women at Bellevue Baptist Church. She said, ladies, I'm just going to be honest with you. If I did that, out of guilt, my thighs would probably swell. And you may say, well, that's a strange thing. But let me tell you one more thing, ladies. If a man did that to his wife, if he falsely accused her, and thereby she was proven to be innocent, listen to this, ladies. Deidre, he could never bring an accusation against her again. Never. She was free. That's powerful. You see, the Levitical law, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that section of the CBT, the chronological Bible, gives all of these different things. Hey, parents, you'll love this one. Belle, you'll love, Belle, you'll love this one. Let's say you've got a rebellious teenager. You, you've dealt with him. You, you remember bar mitzvah, bar means under, mitzvah means the law. So it means under the law at age 12 you got a rebellious teenager. You can't control it. You know what you do? You go to the ten of meetings. You take them down to the priest. You and your husband, you go down and you take them. And, and what they do is they determine that this is an uncontrollable teenager. Then they call the community together and they stone them to death. Now that, that doesn't mean they get them drunk. That means they stone them, literally. And guess who throws the first rocks? The parents. Now let me tell you, you wouldn't have no trouble with juvenile delinquency. It'd only take one... You know, they used to say this in, the, in Africa and in Zimbabwe. I think, Stan, I told you this. At Elephant Hill, some of those hotels, that big five-star hotels around Victoria Falls, that they had problems with the baboons harassing the guests and stealing food. They said what they would do, they would kill one baboon, hang it up out there, and that would solve all the problems. No other baboon would come around. Uh, I hate to compare teenagers to baboons, but let me move on. There, there, there's, there's lessons in here about incest, about the danger of incest. And I thought to myself, I wrote down, incest leads to a lot of heartache. Many a grown man or woman has been victimized when they were a child by sexual activity at a young age, and it has carried deep psychological scars to this day. So the Bible talks very clearly about incest. Hey, it talks about sex... Oh, uh, Man, we'll have to edit this. Talks about sex with animals. Ivan May said this. I thought this was good. And I quote her every couple of times a week. She said that her husband, Dr. Stan May, PhD, preached through the book of Leviticus. When he came to this point about no sex with animals, he, she said, she's sitting out there, she's thinking, how's he going to approach this? Stan May, this guy studies every day in the Greek and Hebrew. Brilliant mind, chair of a department in seminary for years. He walks to the side of the pulpit and he looks at him and he says, the Bible says do not have sex with animals. He said, just don't do it. And he moved on to the next thing. But he did bring up this. Both he and I have brought up something. And I thought it was so powerful. Why, God, would you say that at all? The reason being is because the heart is desperately wicked. And we are so depraved that God's moral law has to be spelled out that quickly because wickedness abounds. 
There's inheritance laws. There's dietary laws. God created your body, my body. If we, the, the, maker's by, a maker's, the maker's diet is a book that is written by a nutritionist according to the Old Testament dietary laws. And basically it says this, if you and I would eat according to the Bible, we'd probably be a lot healthier. It has things about blood and meat. Why would it have that? Because God knew that cholesterol, HDL, LDL, um, all of the problems that we have are identified in the blood, and most of it comes from the fact of eating raw red meat. Now, let me close. Moses is about to die in the book of Deuteronomy. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And Moses is counseling these people as to how they will survive and how they will thrive in the land that they were going into. Moses is a changed man. Let's stand. Let me share a story with you before we close. You know, um, you know, I told you Jack Higgins, this British novelist, said he wished when he was a young man somebody had told him when you get to the top, there'll be nothing there. Moses was schooled in the school of the Egyptians. He had the best education of his day. He was the prima donna probably in Pharaoh, in Pharaoh's court. He was raised like the son of Pharaoh. He had everything that life could give him. He had education, he had power, he had position, he had popularity, he had everything, but nothing was of real value. Moses, I think, understood God's call in his life because one day at the age of 40, Moses witnesses an Egyptian taskmaster beating a Hebrew because they beat him. They were slaves. And Moses rose up and he took in a moment in a fit of rage and he took that Egyptian and he killed him just that quickly. And the Bible said he buried him in a shallow grave. Pharaoh and Pharaoh's army found out and in that moment, the chase was on for Moses. Moses fled. He ran to the wilderness, and he spent 40 years in the wilderness of Midian. And there he meets his wife. There he has a family. And at 80, he meets God, and he returns. Let me tell you a story real quickly. Because I think what Moses was saying, I've been to the top, there's nothing there. I think Moses was saying you learn to live, you learn to live in the will and the purpose and the plan of God's life for you. Robbie Zacharias and his wife went to the Hawaiian Islands. Eventually, Robbie Zacharias asked the God if he could go to an island called Malakali. Malakali was where lepers were taken and where the story was told of a missionary by the name of Damien de Brewster. Damien de Brewster was a self-centered, selfish individual. He didn't care about missions. His brother, his brother had been called to Malakali, to this leper colony. But his brother died on his, on his way to the assignment. So David, uh, Damien de Brewster, feeling the weight of his brother's commission not being fulfilled, finally, maybe out of guilt, decided that he would go to the Hawaiian Islands, that he would go to Malakali. He was a Belgian missionary appointed by the Belgians. He went to this leper colony and he began to serve there and he fell in love with the lepers. 
Before long, they said that he would hug them. He would embrace them. He would work alongside them. He would eat with them. He would build a chapel for them. It said that one day, Damien de Brewster was fixing himself a cup of hot tea. He had boiling water in a kettle. As he was pouring the water into the cup of tea, some of the water sloshed out onto his bare foot. Took a minute. He couldn't feel anything. He took a little more of the boiling water and he dropped in on his other foot. He couldn't feel anything. And in that moment, in that moment, Damien de Brewster realized that he too was now a leper. He knew what had happened. That morning, he made his way to the chapel. He began his sermon not like he usually did because usually he'd stand before the leper colony and he would say, my fellow believers. But on that morning, he began with these three words, my fellow lepers. Robbie Zacharias said they were standing there looking at this grave marker, Damien de Brewster, this Belgian missionary. And Robbie Zacharias looked at the guy from Hawaii. He said, and so Damien is, de Brewster's buried there. And the guy said, no. He said, the Belgian army asked for his, I mean, the Belgian government asked for his body. So they exhumed his body and sent it back to Belgium. But before, he did, before they did that, the Belgian government came and exhumed his body to make it a memorial in Belgium. But before they did that, they said that the lepers, all of these people gathered, and they began to plead with the Belgian government. They said, if you can't leave his body, then cut off his right arm, cut off his right hand, because that was the hand that touched us. And leave at least his right hand here. And the guy looked and said, Ravi, in this grave, the only thing that remains of Damien de Brewster, this Belgian missionary, is his right hand. Let me say this. He who knew no sin became sin. Why do you think God, Jesus says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because in that moment, the sin, past, present, listen, future, all sin, the sin of the world, was placed squarely on his shoulders. He became sin who knew no sin so that you and I might have his righteousness. God transferred your complete sin debt, all of it, sum total, from your first breath to your last breath, and he placed it squarely on his shoulders, and he began a transaction. He covered, atoned, covered, propitiation, sacrificed his son. He sacrificed his son. His son paid your penalty, my penalty, so we could go free. Now listen to me. Listen to me. That doesn't mean anything if you have not appropriated that blood over your life. You can say, I believe in the Lamb. You could have been a Hebrew during the time of the last plague when they would kill the, when God, the death angel, killed the firstborn. You remember that? And you remember what the Hebrews were told? They were told, they said, go out into your flocks, go out into your flocks, find a lamb without blemish, slit the, slit the neck of that lamb, take that blood, spill it over into a basin, take the hyssop, that, that herbal branch, dip it into that blood and put it around the doorpost of your home. A Hebrew family or Hebrew man could say, I believe that. I believe Moses is telling me the truth. I believe that's right. 
But if that man does not appropriate that blood over his life and the life of his household, my friend, the death angel would have took him. It didn't matter whether he was Hebrew or not. You cannot, you cannot risk going and taking your last breath and stepping into eternity unless you know at some point in your life you have appropriated the Lamb's blood over your life, the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. That's the new covenant. The law, it's inside. Do you know Him? Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to You in the name of Jesus, Lord. What a beautiful, precious, sweet name. Everything in the Bible. So we look at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Deuteronomy, these first five books, the Jews called the Pentateuch, and for many of them, they memorized. Twelve-year-old children would memorize the first five books of the Bible. Wow, bar mitzvah. But Lord, what is knowledge of your word without knowing the one who breathes the word? What is knowledge of your word, the written word, if we've not appropriated the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, over our lives? So we pray, dear Lord, for today here. If there's a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, maybe somebody on the website, maybe somebody driving, somebody sitting into an office right now, they're sitting in that office, they're listening. Maybe somebody with earbuds in the ears and they're just walking along, maybe on a treadmill. If there's someone here, there's someone in the sound of my voice, and they say, Brother Jeff, I believe everything that you've said. I believe what the Bible says. I believe what you've even said about Jesus. But they've never appropriated. They've never pled the blood over their own life. They've never come to a point of repenting of their sin and saying, Lord Jesus, forgive me. Come and live inside of me. And in that moment was baptized and began to follow you from that day forward. But right now you're pleading and speaking to them. You're knocking on their heart's door. I pray, dear Lord, that they would receive you. That they would open up their life. That they would realize that right now, Jesus, you're standing there. And you're just simply saying, let me in. And the Bible says that when you come in, you fellowship with us. Kononia in the Greek, intimate, personal communication. So, Lord, we pray today if there's one here, that they will invite you in. Lord Jesus, that they would just simply pray, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I've done a lot of things I'm ashamed of. But I ask you right now to come into my heart to forgive me of my sin and to be the Lord and the Savior of my life. Thank you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus.